Welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Christy Costa, with a bit of a sore throat this week, but I'm thrilled to be joined for episode 51 by Christina Sass, co-founder and president of Andela, the startup that helps companies build high-performing engineering teams by investing in Africa's most talented software developers. What makes Andela stand out isn't the brand name of a university, but the preparedness of its students for the engineering jobs they fill. With experience as an educator in locales across the globe, Christina personally knows just how important education can be. Her own family taught resilience from a young age, and that's exactly what Andela sees in its students. But enough for me, let's hear from Christina herself. Christina, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I'm such a big fan of Andela, so thanks for being here. You're most welcome. Thank you for having us. So I'd love to start talking about your background and, and kind of what the idea of Andela is, if you could tell our listeners for those who might not be familiar with it. Absolutely. Andela is finding extraordinary technologists across the continent of Africa. And these are folks that have a strong foundation in um, computer science and engineering. And we are spending time with them to really make them globally competitive and build on their strong foundation. And then we're placing them as full-time distributed technologists and full team members for, um, for companies around the world. And so we launched in May of 2014 um, with a, um, a small but steady crew and um, folks that had been building some ed- education technology in Lagos. And if you fast forward three and a half years later, we're 400 people strong. Lagos. We got 300, just under 300 in Nairobi. And then we launched um, Kampala, Uganda this July, 2017, um, and just brought in our cohort four and are at 57 total there. So it's been an absolutely incredible three and a half years. The large majority of that team is our our software developers, and they are placed at about 120 different partner companies that are spread across six continents, but with high concentrations in the United States. Wow. Well, congrats on your success thus far. And and for my listeners, Christina is actually joining us from Nairobi. So yeah, she is literally on the ground there. And <laughs> I mean, I love this idea because I know your co-founder, Jeremy, had started to you and you have such a deep background, you know, with program development for the Global Global Initiative. And and I'd love to know how you guys came together and found this opportunity. It seems like a, a marriage of both worlds of education and and kind of you really knowing the space well. Right. Well, it really was. I think the the early founding story, um, each of us came from, you know, from such a different angle and such different expertise, but with a shared passion for the following, the fact that there is sort of untapped talent all around the world and employers that desperately need those talent, that talent. And then we have this, you know, historic moment where the internet is allowing us to break down those barriers and, you know, allow us to revalue the talent and appropriately, you know, place it with companies that need those specific skill sets. And I think we were just frustrated that that wasn't happening at a greater scale. And certainly all of us, you know, firmly believe that we are far behind in providing what most of uh, young people in the world need in the way of access to great education and education that really lands them great jobs in their local marketplace. And so when we came together, I, I invited my business partner and, um, and dear friend, now business partner, but at the time, he was three months away from IPO at 2U. I brought him to speak to a group of really incredible leaders across the African continent. And we were all thinking about better ways to create uh, career paths and pipelines from education systems into career paths for for young people to really recognize the incredible talent across the continent. And I knew to use model and was 
thoroughly impressed with what they built. The majority of their programs take, took place online, but they had better job placement rates than on-campus universities with places like Georgetown and Berkeley. And this was pretty extraordinary for anybody in the education field. So I brought Jeremy to speak about how in the world they had done that, that they had leveraged you know, the internet you know, to find very specific pools of jobs, train people for those jobs and connect people to those jobs. And so I was like, we need to replicate this and, and kind of leverage the incredible talent pools that we see here in Nairobi and Lagos and across the continent. And so we kind of pitched a collaboration between our current, between our organizations at the time and, you know, started some really interesting, rich conversations. And then there were, you know, sort of complications along the way and we weren't able to move forward with that collaborative idea, but Jeremy and I were very moved by this idea. And we were like, there's a business model here. There's a sustainable business model here. And so we really focused in on what is most in demand on the global marketplace that can be done remotely. And it's very clearly software development. That's when we kind of found e, Ian, Nat, and Bryce, killer startup crew that had met at the University of Waterloo and then was sort of applying um, some ed tech to in, in Lagos, to Lagos universities. We asked them if they wanted to pivot and think about this model for, for software development. And the rest is history. We launched a pilot in May of 2014 altogether. I love that, especially because I think that you, as founders, you look for secrets that other people don't know. And, and I, I would imagine that pitching investors on Talon Africa might sound like it's obvious on paper, but it would, it would require a lot of education. And so did you actually find that that was the case or or did you guys find that investors really knew the value add for uh, early on? I give a ton of credit to our, our earliest investors. I think they are on this greater journey and movement with us. They really understand both the mission and the business goals of Andela. Uh, and it did take, you know, definitely some education understanding, but really what we told them was, you know, you really need to come see it on the ground. You need to come and meet our talent and see, you know, both some of the, the challenges that we're going to have to work through and see why it's absolutely worth it because of the level and depth of the talent pool. And so they did. Our earliest investors have all been to either Lagos, Nairobi, now Kampala, and have just, you know, really seen the intricacies of it. And so the one thing that we did not have to convince them of is the huge need for software developers. Uh, mm. It was one of the things that, that resonated immediately. They were like, everyone in our portfolio needs this talent and struggles to find and keep it. And, you know, we were like, we think we have a better way to do this. We've got incredibly passionate technologists that have a solid foundation and can absolutely add value both in person and as distributed team members. We should, you know, just remove the barriers for these two to connect. So that that we didn't have to sell them on at all. They totally got it. The quality of Andela is really unparalleled. I think you guys have been called harder to get into from Harvard. It's one of those <laughs> bites that really stand out. But, you know, so congratulations on that. And I, I'd love to talk about, you know, you guys are based in New York. Clearly you're in Africa as well. But is there a reason behind New York? Was it just proximity to Africa? Or do you see some value in being in New York City? You know, it's somewhat of um, an accident that Jeremy and I were there when the idea came about and he was, you know, f you know finishing up his his time at, at 2U. 2U had one office there and then another one in D.C. And I was, a lot of the partners that I was working with had offices in New York as well. So, so you know, somewhat of an accident. But, you know, but really the, the mothership of Indela is is Lagos. It's, you know, it's a mm -hmm. much larger, much higher, um, faster growth. Um, but, you know, what, what made sense about New York is that it was at the center of a lot of different funding and interesting funding streams, people that, um, you know, knew the, the need for 
um, for tech talent, and then a lot of interesting high growth startups or places that incubated there in New York and then spun off to, to secondary cities. So we got to be kind of at the center of that and, you know, relatively quick trips east or west to great overnight from through Atlanta straight to Lagos. And then, of course, we could be on the West Coast when we needed to be. Um, so I think we saw, we all signed up to, to pretty much live on planes. But part <laughs> of our explicit promise to our software developers is that we're well aware of the their skill set, their level, their passion, their, you know, and even the the really cool tech startup energy that we see in these cities. Um, you know, Nairobi being the birthplace of mobile money. You've got some of the more ancient tribes on the planet that have been tra transferring money on their phones since 2007 from Nairobi. So they really leapfrogged mobile money transfer in the States. And so part of our promise was we will tell the entire world about you and we will put these you know, new tech epicenters across the continent on the map. And so that was another reason to, you know, to be in New York, kind of just telling people about these new streams of talent pools. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned to me earlier that basically everyone on the ground is kind of like their own CEO in, in each country. And I mm. think that's a fantastic way to look at it. And it really does come from, from the operators and not just the founders. hundred percent. Yep. We we talk a lot about, you know, what is sort of global best practice versus what is our, you know, real secret sauce. And we just it's a part of who we are that we're empowering leaders and and selecting for leaders at every single level. And so a huge part of that is country level representation. Um, and so I'm I'm here in Nairobi with uh, Joshua Maniki, our country director here. He's not you know 35 years older than our software developers. He's he's kind of 10 years more advanced and he's built businesses, you know, sold them, run them. He's you know a lawyer here here in Kenya, but he's Mostly he's here because he has built and seen the challenges with all kinds of businesses here. And he's deeply, deeply invested in a next generation of leaders and leaders that have the tech skills to be able to scale all other kinds of solutions. And so him being here and speaking for Kenya and problem solving in Kenya, like he can do it a thousand times better than we can. So it is definitely a critical part of who we are. Yeah, I love that. And so now we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about you so I'd love to know, you know, where your earlier years took place, where did you grow up and, and what your parents did for a living? Absolutely. I grew up in Georgia, in the Southeast, still miss it, really a Southern girl at heart. And my father immigrated to the States um, from Germany when he was 22 years old. And so I was extremely lucky to have a very global mindset and feel like and act like a global citizen from a young age. And so he frequently carted us all around the world and, and we were able to experience the richness of lots and lots of different cultures. He also, you know, had to grow up in in a pretty horrific post-World War II Germany. And so he was dedicated to focusing on education and education mm -hmm. that would lead him into a lifelong career path. Really hammered that home to my brother and I in really the the special way that only a German can. <laughs> <laughs> and so my father got a he started off in um, North Carolina, just in Raleigh-Durham, literally moving boxes in an IBM warehouse and moving parts of which things that would be built into computers. So the different parts of the you know inner workings of computers while he was mm -hmm. learning English. And 
showed initiative in multiple different ways, which was recognized by his bosses there. They gave him time to go and finish his degree and held a job for him when he came back. They looked for areas to promote him because he's, you know, had just a ton of persistence and drive and um, and really stuck with him. He had a 35 year career path with IBM because they invested in him and they invested in him when he was an immigrant and he was, you know, finding his way before he was a U.S. citizen, before him and mom got married. There are elements of that very powerful story across the Andela story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for people that will commit to us for multiple years that want a whole career path. And we're going to invest in them and give them the opportunity to, to both add value to companies and then continue to grow themselves. We believe in that part of the social contract as well as business model. And so I grew up yeah, in Atlanta where my both my parents worked at IBM for many years. And then after that, I went to school in Athens, Georgia, go dogs, having a pretty decent <laughs> football season this year. And, I, and then my first job out of college was working at the Athens, Georgia YMCA. And so Athens is, you know, bustling college town that is surrounded by you know, abject Southern poverty. And so I quickly was in the deep end of the pool with working with communities and figuring out how to solve some of the more pernicious, you know, um, poverty and teenage pregnancy and lack of employment. And so really early on kind of gained a passion for doing that and, and figuring out the right and the wrong ways to do it. As soon as I was able and I saved enough to go apply that, you know, kind of the same passion globally. And so you could summarize my career path in the following way. Started out as a very idealistic educator. You know, let's provide the best quality education to everyone in the world and then a thousand flowers bloom. And then I went out and lived it in Clark County, Georgia and in the Palestinian territories in Nablus in a small town called Xingcheng, just outside of Guangzhou in China and then in Nairobi in Kenya and heard the same thing over and over again from such impressive young people, which was they were willing to fight and do anything possible to advance their career path, but they were just not prepared for jobs that they could actually get. They heard over and over again that they needed two to three years experience and that nothing would bridge that gap. So they took on a ton of volunteer opportunities with me or six week long trainings where they got you know a piece of paper, but not the skill set that they needed. And to be honest, Christina, like I just, this is inexcusable. We have yeah. all the tools in the world to provide what is needed for young people and to show them which jobs are actually available to them in their home communities and provide that. And so this is, that reshaped my entire career path. After working in multiple places, I you know, got hyper-focused on scalable solutions to force education systems to prepare young people for, you know, career paths. And the same way in the, in the reverse, getting employers who are constantly complaining that there's not the talent pool that they need to get involved in all the different ways that they can make that connection, that they can fix the labor market, particularly for young people. Apply that in many different circumstances. And certainly Andela, perhaps slightly arrogantly say that this is just the best way I've ever seen to do it. We, yeah. you know, we've, we've narrowed down to, to a, a highly in-demand skill set and the absolute best way to, to connect employers and then people that have and want that, you know, that job that are willing to hustle for it. And we just remove the barriers for those two things to happen. I really love that you reframe, you know, you talk about the importance of education, but clearly you don't mean necessarily the traditional, like you have to go to college. I feel like you 
you equate it with no, lifelong no. learning, which is how education should be thought of. And it's really getting employers to reframe their own mindset to say like this, this great talent might be in your own backyard. It just might not look like what you've been taught to think it's going to look like. Not everyone needs to go to university. People can really work hard and learn skills and, and gain experience and be these great employees. And I love that you have the local focus. I think too many times we encourage people. I mean, we are literally the country of, of opportunity that people are synonymous with America is coming here and starting over. But I wouldn't would it be great if you could do that where you live and not have to abandon your family and things like that and have that support system there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a key part. You know, we can just, we can do education way more efficiently and where we put the power in the hands of the learner. So in our traditional models, you hope that a teacher gets up there and that some of it lands. And this is actually a lot of what I found so powerful about Jeremy's previous company to you is that when you have an online platform, most people think of a boring MOOC where you sit and listen, but it's the opposite yeah. of that. It is 12 people where you can see everyone's face and the facilitator pops up a quiz and you can take the quiz and immediately see if half the people failed the quiz or they all missed question 12, then obviously you didn't teach it well enough. And so that so rarely happens where we can say, nope, the instruction level was not good enough. And let's look at 12 different ways that other people have taught that and see what resonates best and track it. Um, so that's one thing is just get even removing inefficiencies and in teaching you know, the, the most critical skill sets. And then for software developers, it's just so clear that there's hard limits to what you can learn in a book or, or on your own. You have to build, you have to build products and product teams. And so quite frankly, like Jeremy and I thought about it, like, should we spend the next 10 years of our life trying to build Berkeley's computer science program in Lagos? And the answer is no, like this is yeah. such a better way to do it for people to build in product teams and that already have an awesome, awesome foundation that can, you know, add all sorts of value to different, to different teams um, at different levels of skill sets. And then, you know, after four years, they've worked for three different companies. They both understand yeah. the product market fit, the go-to-market strategies for those companies, the challenges and how to actually build a thing, you know, that requires customers to validate it or not. Like that is just yeah. a better way to learn this, you know, particular skill set and then redeploy it. Yeah. And we and think I, that because you can do it well in a distributed fashion that you don't have to uproot anyone from home. They can go yes. sit in that office for a month and then work the rest of the year from, from Lagos and be a fully contributing team member. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about Berkeley because, you know, I think sometimes I worked with engineers in my last two jobs. I worked at two um, mobile software companies. And what a lot of them told me was that they, even the ones that got computer science degrees were like, we didn't really do this in college though. You know, the first time we were really coding might've been after school, unless you were doing it for some projects on the side. I wonder if sometimes we're so, everyone knows that education needs an upheaval, but we're so nervous subconsciously to do it because it might then lessen the importance of the degrees that we all hold. And so I, I wonder if that's ever going to be shifting. I hope so, because, it, you know, we keep yeah. talking about how, you know, the memorization and regurgitation model doesn't really work that well, right. and, but yet right. we still hold value on, it's kind of a spray and pray approach, like get into a good school and then take a lot of classes and pick your major. But you know, a lot of people know it doesn't really matter what major you take and we're just throwing yeah. away money, trying to right. reinvent the wheel. So, and that's, you know, that is the, the model that you see in the States a lot. And, yeah. and for those of us that, you know, have had the, the ability to, to go to those kind of schools, you can adopt, you know, the skill sets that you learn to multiple different, 
you know, multiple different jobs. And there's probably, there's, there's a baseline skill set that applies to all of it. But what makes me infuriated is the community college outside of, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, where, you know, those people have saved for years and years to go to a community college and then it lands them no job. We owe young people better than that. If they invest in, you know, two or four years of career education, it should land them a job. And if it doesn't, you know, they should get their time and money back. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Um, I know that's impossible, it's- but what I, what we're trying to do is, is, you know, say to people, look, this is a specific career path for the next four years and you will be building you know, mobile web, like you, this is exactly what you'll be doing, but we're not going to waste any of your time in training for anything else. You are going to absolutely delight our partner companies because you know how to, because we have a closed feedback loop between what our companies want and what we're, you know, teaching you to be able to do. And so we just need more of that in these, you know, in the places where there's, you know, huge high unemployment, but a bunch of open jobs. And so do you ever dream of of coming back in and doing something like this in America where we have such an income disparity and education disparity in our country? What we see in the States is that there, you know, the market is kind of flooded with these shorter term dev boot camps. So I think there, mm-hmm. you know, there are opportunities for, you know, particularly career changers. Um, and so that's a place where I think there's just too many players in the market. But where we are thinking about talent that that they want to be software developers or they want to use their skill sets and technology to scale all sorts of other solutions. I think so, but not yet. We need to build a global brand. I think that what we see here and have the wind at our back is a generation of young people who are so hungry to participate, to compete, Mm -hmm. and where there really isn't, there aren't a lot of other people screening for this kind of grit and persistence, where you really still have to you know, you got to know somebody or get lucky to, to kind of make the jump. In the States, there are, you know, a slew of different ways that people are sort of screening for that. What we do experience in the short term is that we're placing our developers with partner companies that cannot fill a job and it slows the growth of the rest of their company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's where we're able to, where we see four and five and developers join Homie, that's a, you know, a relatively small real estate app in Salt Lake City and just outside of Salt Lake City. And they're able to grow out the features and, you know, build all kinds of things that were needed on that app. And so now the Homie team, the sales and marketing team's grown, the finance team's grown, the BD team has grown. Uh, And so that's where we are. It's just an awesome relationship between employers in the U.S. where we're helping them grow their companies too. So that's the more immediate. But yes, I think after we grow a global brand, we would be able to recruit in a similar way from cities in in the U.S. and elsewhere. And for you, you know, we've talked about how you were at the Clinton Global Initiative a little bit. And then I think we didn't really go into the MasterCard Foundation, but I'd love to know, when did you consider entrepreneurship as a viable career? Or did you always have this burning desire to found something or was it really the idea? So in my early days, even at the YMCA, so I, I would consider myself very much an entrepreneur before, even though I wouldn't have used that word. But now that I mm. look at starting huge programs within other organizations, it was just like pure startup life. So tripled the size of the program at the Athens YMCA, which was my, you know, literally my first job, first job out of college. And then when I was in China, built 
you know, built from scratch. That was my first experience as a founder. So built a, a leadership program and, and for, you know, um, an ESL program, more advanced for young people that were living in that region. And, you know, grew it up to, to 250 young people there in, in and around a, an education campus. And so that was awesome. That was definitely my first experience founding something. So I knew I always had the bug, but I lived and worked in all those four different countries. And I just became obsessed with the problem, which is why are our education systems and our jobs so disconnected? You know, why are these two things disconnected? And so it's what I encourage, you know, entrepreneurs that approach me now or people that want to pursue this career path, it's like you have to find the specific problem that drives you absolutely nuts that you can get up every single day for minimum five years and do it at the worst of times and the best of times. If you can do that, then, you know, then I would consider launching your own thing and you have to go out and try it in a bunch of different settings and make sure that what you're adding is actually unique is actually solving a problem that no one else is in a better way. So, you know, there were sort of elements of it. My brother is is, is an entrepreneur in, in North Carolina, has a rapidly growing business as well. And so I don't think our parents never like put us through entrepreneurship classes by any means, but we were made to be incredibly resilient and problem solvers. And so there, I think now that I look back, there was certainly evidence of it, but what really drove me is solving this problem. And knowing when Jeremy and I were in Nairobi, you know, there was just a moment I can picture it. We were like, what if we built it? You know, we're not going to get to where we think we can get in terms of efficiency in the next two years with a complex collaboration. We weren't opposed to it, but it was too far away. But we were like, we can solve this. And, yep. um, and it was that solving that problem that really fueled to the fire. I don't think parents need to be beat a dead horse and say like, you should be all be entrepreneurs. But I, I think it's interesting the way you talked about your father coming here and, and having loyalty and, and doing hard work and, and the importance of continual growth. And it just all together to me, sounds like a recipe that entrepreneurship could be a viable career option if you're smart about it. You know, if you've mitigated for risk and if you really see the value you can add. Absolutely. I mean, my my father's group, as I said, it, it really defined the way that we grew up. He was an extremely driven, ethical leader in our household and as a manager, you know, as he pursued his different career paths. And he had very close groups of colleagues from every place that he ever worked. He had to go down and launch IBM um, and lead it in Charleston, South Carolina in the early days. And, you know, he and my mom were like relative, you know, for that time and place were very adventurous to kind of take an opportunity and, and move somewhere else and go do it. So there were certainly elements of it. And then there's just hilarious things. Like I tell people stories that my dad was like, when I was growing up, the first time I ever had, you know, my, the car stalled on the side of the road and I had no idea what was wrong. And I called him so upset and crying. And, and he was like, are you safe? And I was like, yep. And he was like, okay, well, figure out a plan, put it in action, and then call me back in 15 minutes. <laughs> and so, you know, there's just, I'm so grateful in, in that he taught us, you know, probably what may seem to some people like extreme resiliency, but to us, he was like, I want you to be able to, to solve all kinds of problems for yourselves. And for me as a yeah. woman, he very clear that I was going to have to compete in a largely male dominated world. And he wanted me to be fiercely capable of doing so. And yeah, I'm so grateful. Yeah, I love that. And so we're just going to switch gears to our final fun questions of the interview. So normally I ask what's another New York startup that you really love, but I would love to know if you know any in Africa as well that you're just a really big fan of. Yeah. I mean, of course I'm thrilled about, about my one of my previous co-founders, E, Ianolua Aboyeji. 
is really attacking global payment systems out of Lagos with a company called Flutterwave. It is still you know, far too difficult for international companies to move into the market in Nigeria and for the average Nigerian to just be able to pay for things in a simple, easy way. And so Flutterwave is building the, the back end um, to allow for that. So that one's a really exciting one. Plus, I just heard about one today. I went to lunch with someone here today that is working with all kinds of truckers and people who do, do these long-term haul, you know, uh, sort of long drive hauls and, you know, both the, on the produce side and on the driver side. And so they're looking at a much more a platform like Uber that allows for a ton more efficiency in trucking across the continent, which is a which is a huge need. So yeah, we see all kinds of exciting energy here in Nairobi. Jesse Moore and team have um, started up Mcopa to mm. bring energy efficiency off the grid, as is off-grid electric. I'm operating here in a nearby Tanzania, and these are, I think, innovations that will reverse very positively impact the United States and the rest of the Western world um, because they're getting such efficient battery life, smaller, more portable batteries that um, that will just improve lives everywhere. So those are a few of the ones I'm excited about. Great. Thanks for sharing those. And finally, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I can't wait to interview our developers that when they, as soon as they go out into the marketplace that are launching launching their own products and, and companies, that's going to be a very, very exciting day for us. So that's be my first one is I can't wait until that day comes. But I think I'll say Elon Musk for the following mm-hmm. reason. He has has a strategy that, you know, Jeremy and I refer to as like crossing the chasm, which is, you know, that you take a, an idea that you can, you know, sell a sort of minimum viable product in it, but the sales, the revenue from that product allows you to leapfrog a much, much, much larger problem Mm -hmm. that will make the world a better place. He's ultimately looking at solving the problem that the earth may not be sustainable for human beings and does so by reusing rockets and, you know, and making that a profitable business. So if you think about the many different ways that he's like, you know, I'm going to build, you know, a car that a lot of people like, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is get much, much more energy efficient for the entire world. That's what we're trying to accomplish in the education space. We want to find a much, much better way to divorce, you know, location from a person's ability to get a merit-based job. And so if Mm -hmm. we can we got to, you know, we're building out that machine to to be able to have very, very, very high quality developers that are growing, powering teams across the world. And then we're going to use that to disrupt entirely the way that we think about education systems and the connection to career paths out of them. So that's who I'd love to talk to you about that particular subject. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on my show today. I really appreciate you making the time. You're most welcome. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap on episode 51. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter so you don't miss the final episode of this season. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for our final episode, number 52.